Welcome to episode 10 of the flagship podcast of Fansided's Call to the Pen. You can find this podcast as well as all the great content our contributors put out at calltothepen.com. I am your host and Fansided contributor, Jonathan Playtech. You can follow me on Twitter at John's Voices, as I always do whenever we meet. I hope to make this an enjoyable and fun experience, baby. New episodes scheduled for Mondays and Wednesdays, weather permitting. We have a lot to get to today, Wednesday, September 6th. We will be talking about the Justin Verlander trade. I missed that on the Monday episode. was too enthralled with talking about the AL MVP race. We're going to talk about the Justin Verlander trade and what he means to the Houston Astros. Did the Tigers get enough back for Justin Verlander? Who won this trade, as everybody asks? Uh... It's like a given. Everybody always asks, who won this trade? Well, maybe not everybody has to win or lose a trade. It's That's why it's a trade. And the, the, we assume they're rational actors and that they're giving up assets that they value correctly. And so nobody really wins or loses a trade. It's people get what they think they get. And that's about that. Anyway, we're also going to be talking about the recent news on Paul Goldschmidt. Oh, Goldie has a uh, bit of an update on his uh, ouchy elbow, and there's a bit of a breaking news that broke last night, and we're going to talk about it on this episode of the Call to the Pen podcast. But first, scoreboard. 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 Hey, Joaquin, I'm out here with Apollos Hester, wide receiver for the Patriots. You guys had one heck of a game tonight. Were you guys able to do to come back and win this thing? All right, well, at first we started slow. We started real slow. And, you know, that's all right. That's okay because sometimes in life you're going to start slow. We're going to start slow, but we're always, always going to finish fast. No matter what the score was, we're going to finish hard. We're going to finish fast. And it's, it's an awesome feeling. It's an awesome feeling when you truly believe that you're going to be successful. Regardless of the situation, regardless of the scoreboard, you're going to be successful. Kicking things off on Tuesday, the Cubs lost to the Pirates 4-3 thanks to a two-run bottom of the eighth for the Bucks. It should come as little surprise that Carl Edwards Jr., Joe Madden's bullpen pet, was the one to surrender the lead, giving up three hits and two walks for the total of two runs. The Orioles walked off against the Yankees 7-6 thanks to Manny Machado bomb. He had two in this game, his 31st and 32nd on the season. The loss dropped the Yankees to three and a half games back of the AL East lead. They still hold a two and a half game lead on the league's first wildcard spot. The Tigers beat the Royals 13-2 without either Justin Verlander or Justin Upton and continued the slide for KC, which has seen them go 4-6 and six in their last 10 games, 9 and 11 in their last 20, and 12 and 18 in their last 30. They still sit just 3 games back of a wild card spot, but need to hurdle 5 teams to be in contention for the spot currently held by the Angels. 
Speaking of the Twins, I had it here that the Twins were holding on to the wild card spot, but later on I figured out that they were not, so uh, this is a segue that is now rendered moot. Speaking of the Twins, they lost to the Rays 2-1 to in Tampa, further tightening the already tight race for the wild card spot in the AL. The Brewers lost to the Reds in Cincy 9-3, so they weren't able to gain ground on the Cubs. They are now three and a half games back of the NL Central lead and two and a half back of a wild card spot. Jacob deGrom got worked by the Phillies as the Mets fell at home 9-1. to The Blue Jays and Red Sox effectively played two games in one, needing 19, ga- 19 innings to settle 3-2 with the Red Sox coming out on top. Josh Donaldson was ejected in extras for arguing balls and strikes. Steven Strasburg struck out eight Marlins hitters in an electric start in Miami as most of South Florida is ready to begin evacuation procedures in preparation for Hurricane Irma. Stay safe out there, all of you, in the path of that devastating storm. Get out while you can. No need to take take chances. Please don't be stupid. Do not try to take on an F5 hurricane. That will be painful. Stay safe, all of you. The Indians beat the White Sox 9-4 to get their win streak to 13. They now have an 11-game lead on the AL Central, virtually sealing the division in their favor. On the other side of the loss, drops the Sox to a winning percentage of 394. They are now battling the Phillies at 384 for the number 2 pick in the 2018 draft. As the Brewers close in over the last couple of games, the Rockies need all the wins they can in the wildcard race, and they got one against the Giants at home, scoring two insurance runs in the bottom of the eighth to cement a 9-6 win. The Angels beat the Athletics in extras 8-7. The win vaulted the Angels over the Twins for the AL's second wildcard spot and vaulted them also over a clever little segue I had written into this script. The Twins are now a half game out of the postseason race. The D-backs bested the Dodgers in LA 3 to 1. That makes 5 losses in a row for the sputtering Dodgers who have just one win in their last 8 games and four of those losses are were, or were at the hands of divisional opponent Arizona. It might be time for a little bit of angst about how a postseason series against the D-backs might go, Dodger fans. The Astros beat the Mariners on the left coast 3 to 1 in Justin Verlander's first start for the squad. He delighted, going six innings with six hits, giving up one run with one walk and seven strikeouts. More on Verlander and the Astros later on in the show. To close out the night of baseball in America, the Cardinals beat the Padres 8-4 to in San Diego. They, the Cardinals, sit four games back of the NL Central and three games back of a wildcard spot in the NL. So perhaps not all hope is lost for the Cards looking to make the postseason? Hmm? Going to get my voice as high as I can go? They need to hurdle only one team, only one, that being the Brewers, to vie for the second wildcard spot in the NL. That's what happened in MLB action yesterday, and this has been your scoreboard on the Call to the Pen podcast. All right. Talked a little bit about the uh, Diamondbacks there, and as we teased at the top of the show, or as I teased, we didn't do anything. You were listening. I was teasing. As we talked about at the top of the show, Paul Goldschmidt had some uh, breaking news of his own. It was really weird to to read this. You'll notice that it says Paul Goldschmidt, and I didn't, I didn't, this wasn't a transposition error or anything like that. This was Paul Goldschmidt releasing his own news, like on his own terms, like calling a press conference on his own to say, hey, this is what happened to me, which is odd. You don't see that a lot. Usually it's especially medical stuff. 
especially nitty gritty medical stuff. It's about you know it's a press release or it's a it's a team rep texting beat reporters or TV guys or or whatever to get it out there on Twitter. Rarely do you see like a a, a player calling a press conference at what they call in the business, and I swear to God they call it this what they call a gangbang to get reporters around him in his locker room to say, uh, yeah, the MRI was this or that. You don't see that a lot. So good on you, Goldie. Good on you. But panic was in the hearts of D-backs fans. Despite all the joy that they felt recently at beating the Dodgers a bunch, there was panic, tons of panic, when they learned that Paul Goldschmidt had left the team to have an MRI on his sore elbow, which is... You know, it as you travel up the arm, it gets more and more acceptable in terms of hitters. Like, if you have a hitter that has a thumb or a finger problem, that's probably the worst. Right after that is a wrist problem in the hierarchy of bad things you do not want to hear about your star hitter on your baseball team. You don't want to hear, you really, really don't want to hear that they have a thumb or finger issue. You really don't want to hear that they have a wrist issue, but it's not as bad as a thumb issue. And right after that, right after the wrist issue is an elbow issue. I mean, because those are all things that are involved in holding and swinging a baseball bat at incredibly high velocities. And so you don't want to hear that your star slugger in a postseason race is ouchie on his fingers, his wrists, or his elbows. But that's exactly what Diamondbacks fans or D-backs fans had to worry about when they heard that Goldschmidt had a sore elbow and was having not only he's going to miss some time, but is having an MRI on it because that's how you learn of structural damage and that's how you learn of a 10-day DL stint. That's how you learn of 60-day DL stints. That's how you learn of shutdown for the rest of the season until the postseason. Maybe he'll be activated again because he is on the roster after September 1st, but you can they could probably shut him down after that. So not as bad would be available for a postseason run, but it's possible that the Diamondbacks would see their star hitter out for an extended period of time when they learned that he was going to have an MRI on his elbow. In the heat of a playoff run, even with a six-and-a-half game lead on the league's first wildcard spot, a boo-boo to your team's best hitter is exactly the last thing fans want to hear. I mean, J.D. Martinez kind of makes up for it. J.D. Martinez being there slapping dingers and thanking God for some reason. J.D. Martinez being there kind of helps out. But mm, still don't really want to hear about this. But all is apparently well with the slugger's elbow. As Goldschmidt said on Tuesday that the MRI revealed swelling but no structural damage. Here's more from Arizona Central. Slugger Paul Goldschmidt said an MRI showed his sore right elbow has inflammation but otherwise is structurally sound, an encouraging development for a Diamondbacks team that could get its best player back in the lineup in the coming days. Manager Tori Luvo, uh, Lavulo said Goldschmidt received, I should really learn how to pronounce that, received a cortisone injection in hopes of alleviating the swelling of his elbow. Though both Goldschmidt and Lavulo said he was available off the bench Tuesday night, players rarely play on days they receive cortisone shots. Yeah, those are a big-time deal. Ask 
uh, Kurt Schilling about cortisone shots. Actually, don't. Don't ask Kurt Schilling anything. Never mind. I take that back. Goldschmidt has been bothered by tightness in his elbow since the start of the club's most recent homestand. He said he mostly feels it in the mornings, adding that once he receives treatment and gets loose, the discomfort goes away. Quote, I'll just keep doing some treatment and getting and get the inflammation out, end quote, Gold, uh, Goldschmidt said. Hopefully it'll go away. They didn't seem too concerned. I feel the same way. He returned to Phoenix on Monday night to visit with team physician Dr. Gary Wazlewski. Lavulo said the club's training staff did not believe anything was seriously wrong with Goldschmidt's elbow, and the visit to Wazlewski confirmed that. Quote, we felt strongly what that was going to be the outcome, Lavulo said, but sometimes you never know. We wanted to make sure every Everything was sound structurally, and it was. Exactly when Goldschmidt will return to the lineup is not yet clear. He believes he could be back as soon as Wednesday, but Lavulo seemed to intimate he might not play until Friday at the earliest, which is fine. And well, end quote there. That's end me reading. Don't mean to imply that AZ Central is editorializing in the way that I tend to editorialize. But it's fine. You know, miss a couple days, you miss a week, fine. You do have a six and a half game lead on the wild card spot, and you're just probably not. I mean, you're just not catching the Dodgers, no matter how much you can. You only play them so many times, and then when you're not playing them, they're off beating the crap out of other teams, and you can't really control that. So, catching the Dodgers is all but a foregone conclusion. It's not going to happen. It is impossible. So with a six and a half game lead on the first wild card spot, missing a week, not too bad. Goldschmidt currently has a batting line, for those of you wondering, of 314, 424, 597, with a weighted uh with a 421 weighted on base average and a 156 weighted runs created plus. He is I mean, since the acquisition of J.D. Martinez, who has been lighting the world on fire, Goldschmidt is still number one on the far and away the team's best hitter. J.D. Martinez is uh, approaching, challenging him for that. But right now it's Goldschmidt. It's Goldschmidt first, and then a very, 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 very distant second, the rest of the D-back squad. He's fourth among qualified NL hitters in weighted on base average, fourth in weighted runs created plus, and fifth among all NL qualified hitters in Fangraph's wins above above replacement. I mean, it's to the point where Goldschmidt's going to be receiving some first place MVP votes. Don't get mad. That happens all the time. There's when was the last time? Was there even a unanimous MVP? Has there ever been a unanimous MVP? Major League Baseball history. Unanimous now. Meaning only one guy received all possible first place votes. Remember it happened in the NBA for LeBron once. And that was a big thing because LeBron should have been the unanimous MVP for a couple years. But there were stalwart sports writers who didn't like that. And, you know, you might want to say that, you know, Giancarlo Stanton is far and away the MV- best MVP candidate in the NL, and I would tend to agree with you, but I would argue that he's not a unanimous type of player. His season is not unanimous MVP worthy, and I don't think anybody's may- – maybe Chris Sale's Cy Young candidacy right now is 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 um, is unanimous worthy. Maybe, 
that's worthy of a unanimous vote. But other than that, I don't, you know, is Matt, what Max Scherzer doing? Max Scherzer's doing big things in the NL. So maybe you could justify that. But in either league's MVP race, I don't see, despite my love for the likes of Mike Trout, I don't see any performance as being worthy of a unanimous vote. And so be ready, be prepared for guys like Goldschmidt to get a little bit of recognition with a first-place MVP vote, which isn't really about somebody trying to award Paul Goldschmidt the MVP. It's about somebody saying, you know what, this guy needs to be remembered as getting votes because he's doing something really, really, really important. And I would agree that Goldschmidt right now, with that line, 314, 424, 597, a 421 weighted on base average, in a weighted runs created plus of 156, and being fifth among qualified NL hitters in FWAR, I would say on top of getting cementing the Diamondbacks as a postseason team, I think that warrants recognition, especially because outside of J.D. Martinez, who was only acquired recently, you know, you go up and down the D-backs roster. And we'll do it right now here on the Call to the Pen flagship podcast. You go up and down the Arizona Diamondbacks roster. And, you you know, outside, again, J.D. Martinez, 41 games, so 145 OPS plus. Jeremy Hazel Baker has played 33 games this season and has a 124 OPS plus. Outside of that, the only guys in the regular starting lineup receiving regular at bats with OPS pluses above 100 or at or above 100 is David Peralta, played in 121 games this year, an OPS plus of 100. That's about league average. Jake Lamb has played in 129 games. He's got a 116 OPS plus. And Chris Iannetta. Played in 74 games, 108 OPS+. And then you have Paul Goldschmidt, who has a 154 OPS+. So, you know, you, you put up that kind of performance, that kind of almost one-man offensive performance for a team that is running away with the wild card spot, I mean, not running away with the division, obviously. But you put up that kind of performance, and you're going to get some MVP votes. So MVP vote getter Paul Goldschmidt had an MRI, all things point to being okay. But losing him for any length of time, even if the wild card race isn't especially tight for the D-backs, as it's not, as the season enters its final month, which it is, could be disastrous for any long-term playoff hopes. And there's been plenty to hope on for D-backs fans, which is why there was so much panic when people realized that Goldschmidt was having an MRI on his elbow. Especially this last week and a half. They took 5 of 5 from the Dodgers, and that has got to feel sweet. They're playing them again today, including two from Rich Hill. The rest was Kenta Maeda. All right. But two from Rich Hill is decent. They're 10-8 and eight against the Dodgers this season, who are ostensibly the largest postseason hurdle to the World Series coming from the NL. 
but 10 and 8 it would be the second worst winning percentage the Dodgers have garnered against any team in baseball this year. Any team in baseball. The Dodgers have fared worse second worst against the D-backs than any team in baseball. They've only fared technically worse against the Washington Nationals who took two of three from the Dodgers earlier this year. And I don't really want to count that because it's only a three-game sample. With the D-backs, you're talking about an 18-game sample. 19 counting today. So in an 18-game sample, that is the worst the Dodgers have fared against any team. That is a lot to hope on. That is a lot to dream on for D-backs fans heading into the postseason. And it is the exact reason why you don't want Goldschmidt's elbow flaming up and hampering him down the stretch. It's not about it's not about maintaining the lead on the wild card. That's for all intents and purposes. I mean, it's it's it would be really hard to give up a six six and a half game lead. It, I mean, even losing, especially with JD Martinez now, but even losing Goldschmidt for an extended period of time, let's say it inflames again and they place him on the 10-day disabled list and have to do it again, let's say, or give him a week rehab assignment, uh, assignment, whatever, to get ready for the playoffs, it's going to be really hard to surrender six and a half games. But it's about who's ready, who's ready to go, who's ready to dominate in the postseason. Again, because the MLB postseason is a crapshoot. And I would think that you would rather have your team firing on all cylinders than, well, this guy's coming off a DL stint. This guy's coming off, you know, he had a couple more cortisone shots. I mean, he's feeling better after the cortisone shots, and the inflammation may even go down after a cortisone shot. But that is not something you want to regularly have to do, especially to your I want to say Goldschmidt is 30 years old, maybe 31. Somebody's going to get mad at me again because I don't know how old Paul Goldschmidt is. But that's that's not what you want happening to your slugger down the stretch. It's good that there's no structural damage. It's good that he's not going to have to be put on a shelf for a long period of time. But something to keep an eye on because there is plenty to hope on for the D-backs and plenty to worry about for Dodgers fans. If you're a fan of the Dodgers, and you've seen your team go 8-10 and 10 against somebody that you are likely going to face in the playoffs. Unless, I mean, the way I'm thinking it would shake out right now, okay, you got the game 162 between the D-backs and, say, the Rockies right now, the D-backs win that, they would go on to face, yeah, you might be facing them first round. Facing them first round in the divisional series. That's got to worry you. A team that has handled you. Handled you all season long and especially handled you after you've acquired, you've gone out and bolstered your playoff roster. You went out and got you Darvish. And you're getting handled. Uh, That's not good. All right. Speaking 
Speaking of bolstering one's playoff roster, Justin Verlander, this is something I didn't get to on Monday, but Justin Verlander finally dealt. It was a big joke about it at the deadline that uh, that Justin Verlander was going to get moved, was he not? And then he posted, uh, I want to say it was to Instagram, a picture of himself like, nope, still here, just waiting, all right. And it was a wonder that people were going to get, was it going to get it, was it going to get done? Were the Tigers asking for too much? Were they too unwilling to help pay Verlander's salary? Because it is a lot of salary. Let's pull this up for you. It is a lot of salary, given Justin Verlander's performance, which we'll get into. But this year he makes $28 million. Next year he makes $28 million. He'll be 35. In his age 36 season, he makes $28 million. In his age 37 season, if his option vests, he makes $22 million. Of course, the 2020 option vests if he's top five in Cy Young voting in 2019, which is unlikely. Unlikely that at age 36, it's possible, but it's unlikely that at age 36, Justin Verlander is going to be in the top five of Cy Young voting. Especially now in a league that has Chris Sale at the top of his game. And who knows how else the league will be shaping out in 2019. But we've been waiting for the Astros to do something. And indeed, members of the Astros have been publicly waiting for the Astros to do something. Going so far as to go to the media to say, uh, you know, we're kind of waiting on somebody here. We would like a little bit of help for a postseason run. We see all these other teams, all these other postseason hopeful teams, even World Series hopeful teams. We see them going out and getting better. We see them going out and getting people to help them to augment already their strengths or to bring up, to shore up some of the weaknesses in their overall game. We see all this happening around the league, and we aren't doing much anything. But it finally got done. We've been waiting for them to do something to bolster their chances of success in the playoffs in the last minute, literally last minute, Waiver wire deal of Justin Verlander was that something. That was that something. And in his first start with the new squad last night, he didn't disappoint. We talked about it in the scoreboard. The Astros acquired Justin Verlander for 19-year-old pitching prospect Franklin Perez, outfielder Daz Cameron, and catcher Jake Rogers. For the Tigers, Perez is the real prize. He sports a 3.69 FIP in AA at 19 years old. Which is uh, pretty damn nice. He was signed, I want to say, in 2015 for a million dollars. Now at 19 years old, a 3.69 fielding independent pitching across three starts in double A, but he was lighting up single A baseball earlier in the year. Always good to see young arms dominating when they're called up to higher leagues, higher rungs in the MLB ladder. Cameron presently has the lowest floor of anyone acquired in this deal. 
but his namesake will keep him getting minor league ABs for as long as he wants them. And indeed, he sort of turned around his offense over the disaster that was the two, his 2016 campaign, which had the Astros and pretty much most of other baseball teams souring on him as a prospect. He's returned not to dominant form, not to blue-chip prospect form, like Franklin Perez, who is a true blue-chipper if there ever was one. But, mm, all right, maybe worthwhile, worth getting ABs, keeping him around, and keeping keep giving him ABs. Rodgers, on the other hand, is a defense-first catching prospect with great technique behind home plate, as scouts say, and a plus arm as graded out by scouts. But the Tigers have to hope that he can figure out how to be at least league average with the bat in order to be worth the time at the major league level. And I don't mean league average, overall league average. I mean league average for catchers. League average for catchers is still bad. It was in vogue for a while to find the offense-dominant catcher, the Ryan Dumitz of the world, if anybody will remember him. Yadier Molina was that prototypical for a while. Joe Maurer, the offense first catcher. Is he good? Well, he's all right. He's not a butcher. That's how they... That's how, the, that's how they describe anybody who sucks at their job. Hey, how's this guy behind the play? Yeah, he's, he's learning. He's learning. He's not going to hurt you. That's how they say it. When they're trying to say, tell you that somebody sucks, that somebody's really bad at something, they don't really say, I mean, this is across all sports. They just say he's not going to hurt you. When they're trying to say that this guy is not very good, you go, yeah, how is he, uh, what is he like calling a game? Yeah, he's not going to hurt you. He'll be able to relay what the pitching coach says from the dugout. Be all right. Or when a when a quarterback comes in, they said this about Jay Cutler all the time. Or well, not about Jay Cutler, but they said it about game managers all the time because Jay Cutler would hurt you. It was Jay Cutler. Jay Cut. They had to hope that Jay Cutler wouldn't hurt you. Jay Cutler was like the inverse of that. But backup quarterbacks, game manager quarterbacks in the NFL, when they bring him into the game, like um, like Alex Smith. You're going to hear that the NBA or uh, excuse me NFL kickoff is going to happen and when the Chiefs start playing and you start hearing commentators talk about Alex Smith what are they going to say they're going to say and you know they got this great defense here in Kansas City and and Alex Smith the greatest thing about him he's not going to hurt you you know what you're going to get in Alex Smith he is not going to hurt you in late in the game, he's not going to throw that deep pick six, and you got to hope that the rest of your team can form around him to do da 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 He's not going to hurt you. That's how they describe it. Rodgers is, is, is that, or that is now the uh, prototypical MLB catcher, is he's not going to hurt you with the bat. He's not going to hurt you. But his defense, his pitch framing ability, his blocking ability, his arm are what we value. But I got to believe that at some point, MLB general managers are going to have to wake up and realize that a catcher's arm is becoming less and less and less important. Because if only because teams are stealing less and less. Sure, you know, you'll get the You'll get the novelty team every couple of years that, oh, you know what, we've noticed, we think that this is going to be the new wave is speed. Speed in the Major League Baseball is exactly how we're going to win. So we built a team around speed, and we want to be fast on the bases, and we're going to steal bases. But 
overall trend-wise, stolen bases are going down across Major League Baseball from year to year to year to year. And at some point, I'm looking for MLB general managers to stop valuing a catcher's arm as much. Because my catching prospect, for, for my money, for my, let's say for my Justin Verlander, I don't want a, my catching prospect has to do something else better, not arm. I don't care how hard he throws because the teams against whom he is going to be playing are stealing less and less. So if you value a guy, if you value a catching prospect for his arm, you are valuing him for something that he is going to need less and less and less, something that he is going to be able to affect the game with less and less and less. Now, again, I'm not of the crazy mind that, oh, I want all my catchers to be power hitters. I mean, I would love it if they could be, but just those guys don't come up as catchers. They get moved to the outfield very early on in their professional or amateur careers. But my catching prospect now has to do something else well. I want, if not pow- if not strict power hitting, then I want a discerning eye at the plate and pitch framing ability. That's what I want. Again, blocking, eh. You know, I'd have to, we they probably have MLB teams probably have better more and better metrics on <clears throat> just how effective blocking a catcher blocking is. But I got to believe that a discerning eye at the plate and pitch framing are exactly what you want in a modern catching prospect, not hey, you know this guy's got a cannon from behind the dish. That's what you want. I don't know why this guy's. T- I don't know why this guy's talking about like Joel Quinville. Uh, you know, you got to get Caner out there and Taser. And anyway. but that's what they get. The Tigers, pretty good. You know, a pretty good haul for Justin Verlander. At this late stage of the game, I think they're sending sixteen million dollars. I want to say sixteen million dollars, but you've got a thirty-four-year-old guy who's making twenty-eight, fifty-six. Oh my God. million? I think that's right. Arithmetic. Guys owed $84 million over the next two seasons. Or, well, sorry. He's owed $56 million over the next two seasons, and it could turn into 78 if he vests. I was counting his 2017 salary. So, you, you know, he's owed $56 million over the next two seasons, He's 35. He's going to be 35 when, you know, when he pitches for his next year. You're not going to get what you're not going to get top, top prospects for that. It's just not going to happen. Not in this market. You know, maybe if the Cubs had a little bit more juice to their system, there was rumored the Cubs became interested at the very last second. They were inquiring. And maybe if the Cubs had a little bit. A few more horses, you could have extracted a little bit more from these two teams because you could have told the Cubs, well, you know, the the Astros are in on it. The Astros uh been calling us all day. So maybe you could have gotten that. But even then, even in a world, if this trade happened months ago, before Aloy Jimenez was shipped off to the south side of Chicago, 
or actually to uh, to Birmingham, Alabama. But even for Justin Verlander, you're not getting a prospect like Aloy Jimenez. You're not getting a Yuan Moncada. You're probably not even getting the likes of Blake Rutherford or anything like that. Excuse me, I'm not thinking of, I'm thinking of Alex Verdugo. I think I'm thinking of Alex Verdugo. Either way, you're not getting those guys for Justin Verlander. So in terms of taking away, you've got your 19-year-old blue-chip pitching prospect around whom you can build. It's very unlikely that this guy would turn into Justin Verlander 2.0, but you've got him, you've got your catching prospect that can come up, and if he turns out to be league average, league catching average with the bat, all right, good for you. And you've turned Justin Verlander's $56 million into two cost-controlled kids, and well, three cost-controlled kids, two of whom might be able to contribute to your MLB team, the third of which, if you get really lucky, you'll have three MLB contributors. What Daz Cameron does for you... What Daz Cameron does for you on a major league level, I'm not exactly sure. I think you need to win the prospect lottery there. But, you know, all right, it's a pretty decent return. No losers there. You didn't get swindled for Justin Verlander. You got a you got one blue chip prospect. I wasn't expecting even that. For the Astros, they get <clears throat> excuse me, well duh, Justin Verlander and some cash considerations to help pay the rest of his deal. Again, I want to say sixteen million dollars. And while he's not the Justin Verlander of old, he is just 34. In an age where pitchers are pitching effectively into their aged 37 and 38 seasons, he has a 3.74 ERA presently combined with a 4.03 FIP, but is also just one year removed from a 3.04 ERA and a concurrent 3.48 fielding independent pitching mark. Again, we're not talking about Justin Verlander still has the juice to contend for a Cy Young and vest that 2020 option. But you got guys that John Lackey that have turned it around. John Lackey's 38 years old, I think, 39 maybe. So, sure, Justin Verlander is aged, and it's not as though he's aged poorly. He's just not 29-year-old, 28-year-old, 27-year-old, fireballing Justin Verlander, which you'd expect. You would expect him to age like this, and he has aged as you would expect. Not bad. Actually, kind of decent. And with the prospect of one more season of returning to that 3.04 ERA and 3.48 fielding independent pitching. He's not the ace he once was, to be sure. But he is the pitching help the Astros needed as they waltz into the playoffs for a showdown for a showdown with pitching heavy teams like the Indians and Red Sox. The Astros sit just fifth in the AL in starter ERA in the AL right now at 4.13. And they're third in starter fielding independent pitching at 3.98. So the addition of Verlander is just the right pitching bang, I would say. For the prospect buck, the only concern right now, the only concern I have is Verlander's 4.35 XFIP. 
His expected fielding independent pitching being more than three-tenths of a point above his real fielding independent pitching indicates he's been getting lucky with home run rate. A statistic which is likely to bloom as he begins pitching his home games with an extreme short porch in left field. Verlander is leaving Comerica Park, which increased home runs for right-handed hitters by 7%. He's leaving that park for a park that increases home runs for the same type of hitter by 12%. So, if Verlander is getting lucky with home runs, and he's still posting a 4.03 FIP, and he goes to a even more of a home run hitter's park, especially with that extreme short porch in, in left field, then there might be a harsher regression to the mean. But that's the only worry. That's the only worry, and that was indeed a worry that Justin Verlander had late into the night when he was asked to sign his name to the piece of paper waving his no-trade clause. He had reportedly wanted to go to the Cubs, again, who showed interest late, but was assured that the and, – and one of his misgivings about Houston was, well, what about that short porch in left field? Because I don't like that. And I can guarantee you pitchers – everywhere do not like that extreme short porch they love it when their team is hitting dingers over it but they know that when they go out there it's the same exact short porch for the hitters they face and that was one of his big misgivings but given talking to talking to the general manager in houston he was able to be convinced that it wasn't that big of a deal but looking at how much that ball, how much that short porch increases home run rate and just how lucky Verlander has been, I think that's something to worry about. But still, now, addition of Verlander, overall, aside from that, the addition of Verlander makes the Astros, I wouldn't say him a favorite, favorite 1A. One, favorite 1 would be the Red Sox, I think, and favorite 1A, man, man, that, Corey Kluber, though. Oh, that Corey Kluber. He just makes it in that 13-game winning streak. Now, nah, you know what? That 13-game winning streak is against the AL Central, by and large. Yeah, I'm going to go favorites. Favorite number one, the Red Sox. Favorite 1A is the Houston Astros now with the addition of Justin Verlander. All right. That'll wrap up this episode of the flagship podcast of Call to the Pen. Be sure to visit calltothepen.com every single day for great content from all of our contributors. You can follow me on Twitter at John's Voices and be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a beat. New episodes Monday and Wednesday, weather permitting. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you next time. I'm out. Bye.